Let's turn to John's Gospel. Um, We're in John chapter 13, reading from verse 36, and tonight we'll focus on verses 4 to 14 of chapter uh, 14. The big theme of this section of John that we began to look at last Sunday is how Jesus prepares his apostles and us, and they're slightly different, how he prepares them and us through them, if you like, for when he is no longer physically with us on the earth, which is uh, now. So let me read John chapter 13, verse 36, to chapter 14, verse 14. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the master... The the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us, or, and that will be sufficient for us to believe. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. Now, it might be because I'm getting a little bit uh, long in the tooth or a little bit old 
that it appears to me in my advancing years as a minister that there are an increasing number of uh, days or periods or seasons when it just seems that God is one or two steps ahead of us. What we might call coincidences or just striking connections or contradictions which really remind us, not in a dramatic way, not in a kind of supernatural way, well, not in an overtly supernatural way, because it is supernatural, that God really is in control. God really is working. So, for example, in a tiny way with Sam, he was able, and we needed him to do this as elders, speak to us last Saturday. And then yesterday, he needed to lead us, and he did. And then tomorrow, God takes care of these little things. We have to believe that. And if you were here this morning, you would have heard Rog preach from a passage and almost feeling himself as he preached just how dissonant what he said was in our culture, and yet how wonderful it is when God speaks so clearly. And you're going to hear from a wholly different passage of Scripture tonight exactly the same conclusion. And what does that say to us? Well, it means that for somebody who's here twice, you really need to hear that for whatever reason. It might be that you really need reassured that what the Bible says somewhere, it says somewhere else. It might be because you are on the brink of faith. It might be because God is drawing you back. It is true, and we need to acknowledge this, that God is at work all of the time. And we just pitch up, plan our sermon series, try and do our best. And he reminds us from time to time that without him we can do nothing. Now last Sunday we began a new series in John 14 to 17. The last words of the Lord Jesus before his death and resurrection. The whole of chapters 14 through 17 is Jesus' teaching on one evening, the night before his death. And what he said to his disciples, the would-be apostles then, about their ministry in the early church, and what he says to us now about our ministry in the church while he is no longer with us, is extraordinarily profound and rich. I mean, just think about it. The next day... He would be tried and hung on a Roman cross. And he knew what was ahead. The cross is no random event that God kind of made something of in retrospect. Jesus was about to die on a Roman cross and in so doing, bearing the wrath of his Father for all sin of all those who would trust in him. And yet his concern that night was simply for his apostles and for us. 
that we might not be troubled or anxious when He is no longer physically with us. And so, while He gives us clear instruction in these verses, we must never, ever, ever lose the impact of the love and the care in which He gives them. Here's a connection to this morning. Rog said, I think at one point this morning, this is one of the strongest and straightest Bible passages in terms of the clarity of its teaching. But does it sound harsh? Or does it sound loving? And here's the Lord Jesus, as clear and as direct and as black and as white as He is anywhere else in the Bible, and yet out of love and compassion and out of a selfless heart, He wants to reassure you and me tonight why we need not be troubled or anxious in our souls at all. These great words at the beginning of chapter 14 function almost like a, a title or a preface to the whole of these few chapters. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust me. And what wonderful words they are. They merit a, a sermon on their own right. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trouble not. Do not be afraid. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And let me just say to you, if you're not a Christian, that that is true. If you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will live the rest of your life, yes, with all the worries and anxieties of our struggling humanity, but deep down in your soul, you will not fear the stuff that before you were a Christian you would never allow your mind even to contemplate. Death and eternity and salvation. Now on the service sheet you'll see four really snappy headings, none of which uh, begin with the same letter. Number one, the longest, Jesus goes to the Father through the cross and the resurrection, securing our eternal future, and will return so we can be with him for eternity. It's a little cumbersome, but I think that's what John is saying in his gospel. Jesus goes to the Father through the cross and the resurrection, securing our eternal future, and will return so we can be with him for eternity. Now, we covered that in detail last week, but let me just touch on it because of the link to what follows. In the first half of chapter 14, the opening section of what Jesus has to say to his apostles and to us, he's answering a number of questions or responding to comments from his disciples. So imagine the disciples sitting together with Jesus around the table after the meal. First, it is Peter who asks Jesus a question. Always, I suspect, Peter is the first to ask what everybody is thinking. Jesus had just been saying that he is going to be leaving them. And so Peter asks, just see that question in verse 36 of chapter 13, Lord, where are you going? Implied in his question, you should not be going. Or please don't go. Or how will we survive? 
Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter's follow-up question, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will date out my life for you. Peter's questions reveal his anxiety, his distress, but also, of course, a degree of self-confidence that boasts that he can follow where Jesus is going. Peter gets a, a bad time, though. He is impetuous, but his desire to go with Jesus to lay down his life for him, there is a genuine zeal in Peter who wants to do that. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14, uh, Jesus answers Peter's question. Remember the questions? Jesus, where are you going? And Lord, why can't I follow you? Now, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, chapter 14, verse 1, he's answering these two questions. Where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? Because Jesus goes to the Father, securing our eternal future, and will return so we can be with him for eternity. That's where he's going. Why can't Peter follow him? Because Jesus' way to the Father, his route to the Father, is uniquely his. His way to the Father is through the cross and the resurrection. Only Jesus can walk that path. Only Jesus can be the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin. What did we hear this morning? That in order that humanity can be saved, it took one man, only one, to be the sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus gets to the Father or can go to the Father through the cross and the resurrection. We cannot do what only He can do. You cannot get to the Father through amassing good deeds or good works. You cannot get to the Father unless Jesus went to the Father uniquely in the way that only He could. We cannot lay down our life for Him or anyone without realizing first that He must lay down His life for us. Total dependence on Jesus is necessary to become a Christian. Total dependence on Jesus, such that we stand back as Peter had to do, and let Jesus go in his unique way to the Father through the cross and then through the empty tomb. Where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? Because I am going to the Father through the cross and through the empty tomb, securing your eternal future. And I will return so we can be together for all eternity. Now, let's move on. The second point on the sheet, the way we get there 
that is to the Father or to eternity, is by trusting in Jesus. Now, it might be that uh, you're drifting off to sleep. It's too cold for that, to be fair. But it might be you are because you're a Christian, and this is awfully familiar. You're not struggling to agree that the only way you get to the Father is by trusting in Jesus. But often what we have in our heads by way of a statement of faith is not what drives and determines the way we live or the way we feel. The absolute clarity of the gospel is such a source of strength. The way we get there is by trusting in Jesus. Jesus is speaking, and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, I didn't read that very well. Um, I don't quite know how Thomas would have asked the question, but uh, maybe something like this. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Stupid question, Jesus. And then this wonderful answer, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What kind of character is Thomas? Doubting Thomas? Yes, he is, because of his skepticism, his slowness to believe when he met the resurrected Jesus. If Peter is a little impetuous, self-confident, we put Thomas down as the doubter, a glass-half-empty character. We don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know the way? But caricatures, of course, are dangerous. And the truth is that Peter is like us, and we are like him, and we are like Thomas. And I thank God for Thomas and the Bible and Peter. Thomas is direct, blunt, who faces up to fear, doubts, and confusion head on. I mentioned a few weeks ago that occasionally your minister has doubts. That caused a bit of a panic for some of you. I mean, not in sense of serious doubts, but, but we all do, and here's Thomas. He doubts. He's direct and he faces up to his doubts. There's nothing worse than the kind of person who bluffs and bluffs and puts on a pious face and nods sagely, giving the impression that they understand everything. They don't doubt when in their hearts they doubt. We thank God for uh, Thomas. Now, what's going on here? With Thomas' question and Jesus' answer, the focus shifts from the way Jesus returns to the Father, that is uniquely to the, through the cross, to the way we get there. Jesus has made it clear that the way he returns is uniquely his, his death and resurrection. And the question is, how do we get there? What's the way for us? Jesus has already hinted at that in his answer to Peter, but he wants to reinforce the point. He wants us to be absolutely crystal clear. So you're thinking, why is he saying this again? Because the Bible says it again, and somebody in this room needs to hear it again. Because you're not there. You're not there. You're not inside the kingdom of God. You're on the edge. You're on the outside. How do you get there? The answer from Jesus, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He could not be clearer. He could not be clearer. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the means of our salvation. Him in person. It's Him in person that we need to believe in and trust in for our salvation. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in a set of creedal statements. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in the church's statement of faith. No. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Every creedal statement, every statement of Christian orthodoxy finds its way into the person of Jesus Christ. I don't want to worship a creed. I want to worship God, and God is a man incarnate in Jesus Christ. We do not become a Christian by obeying Jesus' teaching or imitating his life. We do not become a Christian by being part of a Christian community. And there's an important statement in the times in which we live. You do not become a Christian by coming along and being part of a Christian community. Being part of a Christian community raises a question in your life. What is it that makes these people tick? But you do not belong until you belong to Jesus. And you do not belong to Jesus until you come empty-handed, humbled, repentant, seeking forgiveness. You do not belong until you have to let him go alone to the cross for you. We become a Christian one way, by trusting in Jesus in his person for our salvation. And maybe you've never, ever really seen that, understood that before. Maybe it's a shock to sit in a church and suddenly realize that the people around you and the culture and the singing and the community, wonderful as that is, will not, not, not save you. Only Jesus can. Now, this statement, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, uh, is a wonderful, wonderful statement. It is one of the great I am statements in John's uh, gospel. I am means, uh, it's the words of God, Yahweh, I am the way. Thomas said, what is the way? What are the directions? How do I get there? What set of statements must I believe? And Jesus cuts like a scythe through all of that, and he says, I am the way. I am the way. Him. Him. The person of Jesus. I am the way and the truth. My words are truth. My words are trustworthy. And I can give you life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is as striking and as provocative as the Bible text we had this morning. If you are not a Christian and this troubles you, indeed, if you are a Christian and this statement of the uniqueness of the way to God troubles you, please talk to someone about your concerns and your troubles. Or come to a course like Christianity Explored, where these questions are laid on the table. Read the evidence in the Gospels for who Jesus is and his unique authority. Do not dismiss a statement from Jesus 
simply on the basis that you happen to have been born and live in the Western world at a point when that statement is at odds with the culture. That's illogical. Do not write off the challenging claims of Jesus because our culture says it is wrong. And let's remember here that this is the Lord Jesus, the night before he would give his life. And what would you or I do humanly in a situation like that with those you loved the most? Would you spin them a lie or would you tell them the truth? The most loving thing to do, hard as it is, is to speak the truth. And these words are spoken by the most loving person who has ever lived. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I, me, no one. For those of you who are here this morning, here's 1 Timothy, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Tonight, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus in a very particular way, like he did with the disciples that night, saying to us as a church, to you as an individual, This is truth. This truth is what's going to convert people. There's one way. Now, thirdly, because Jesus is one with the Father, we see and hear everything we need. Verses 7 to 11. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, it's Philip's turn now, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. You see the logic thought in John's narrative. Peter says, where are you going? Why can't I follow you now? Jesus explains the unique way he must go through the cross and the resurrection. Thomas, the focus shifts from the way Jesus gets to the Father to the way we get there. How can we know the way? I am the way. You need to trust me, believe in me. And the question in Philip's mind, can we really be sure that in Jesus we have everything we need. Can we really be sure that he is the one that I'm going to pin all my hopes on for life and eternity and do what he says? What brilliant questions they are. They're the questions somebody on the brink of faith is wanting to know the answers to. Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. Peter is the impetuous, self-confident one. Thomas, the direct, blunt, glass half empty one. And Philip is the kind of guy who says, I just want some more information, a little more proof, a little more insight, a little more revelation, a special word from God, show us the Father. Now, you might be sitting here tonight and you might be thinking, if only, if only I saw this. If only there were a little bit more. Or you might be someone who does believe. And yet, your heart nags away and said, I know I believe, but for me, 
I doubt, I doubt, I doubt. Is it really true that I could stake all eternity on this man? Jesus answered, verse 9, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Philip, don't you know who you have been with? Don't you know who I am, who you are talking to now? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Did the light begin to dawn in Philip's mind? Did the clarity as to who Jesus is grip his mind? I am in the Father, Jesus says, and the Father is in me. And of course, Philip had been with him for three years, and he's seen all these marvelous things. Which is why it's really good if you're not a Christian or if someone you know who is not a Christian say, well, come along to church for a year and get to know Jesus and get to know the Father. Some of the more mature Christians in the room are nodding because they know that's true. Get to know Jesus. Get to know the Father. There's something else here that we can just touch on. The words Jesus said that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And the point I think there is the words of Jesus do the work of God. When you think of the words of Jesus, that's not Jesus' words written in the Bible. The words of Jesus are, are the apostles' words. Jesus speaks through his apostles to us. So when you pick up the Bible, or when I preach in the Bible, what's happening tonight? You're hearing the words of Jesus. That's great. It's not me saying, he is the way and the truth and the life. It's him saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's very different. You're hearing the words of Jesus. And when you speak the words of Jesus... The work of God happens. When you take the words of Jesus and change them, the work of God cannot happen. We must believe that. And we must believe it because you do not see the fruit of the words of Jesus in the way that the world looks for fruit. You do not see numerical growth, for example. You might, but you might not. You will see it in eternity, though. True converts. Lives that have stood at the foot of the cross and let go of Jesus and let him die for them. And that's why, as a church, the Word of God is at the heart of everything we do. Let me encourage you, as I often do with people when I meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, if there are very difficult things going on in your life, and there probably are in many of your lives, and you need refreshment, and you need perspective, then just read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Read a psalm. Read the psalms. And we're all charismatic enough or we're all trusting enough in the supernatural work of God that he will lead you to read stuff that will speak comfort into your very souls and no book no human wisdom no minister's counsel nothing else will accomplish the work of God like the word of God
Why? Because as you read the Word of God, you experience the work of God, which is you coming face to face with the living Word, Jesus Christ Himself. Believe in me, verse 11, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And I think what that means is that, look, just read the gospel books, especially those with a scientific mind, and find empirical evidence to absolutely ratify the fact that this man is the Son of God. Now, as we come to a close, let me finish with uh, verses 12 to 14. Um, Norman said I'd explain them. That'll take me 45 minutes. Let, let's not try and fudge them or pretend they don't say what they say. How about that, yeah? Let me, let, let's not explain them away. Let's take them on, face on. What are they actually saying? Uh, in his physical absence, Jesus gives us astonishing responsibility. And when you read the text, he's not talking about the responsibility given to the apostles. He goes straight through to us. He begins to address the theme that he'll pick up more and more in the rest of this section of John. What resources will he give us? What task will he give us when he is no longer physically present with us? Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me, that can't just be the apostles, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. In other words, I'm going to the Father, I can't do what you're being left on earth to do. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what are we going to do with this? Is that not just one big exaggeration the night before Jesus' death to say, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, whatever you ask, I will do it. Surely the Lord doesn't mean what he says. Well, it would be wholly inconsistent with Jesus to spin or to lie. It would be wholly inconsistent with his intention lovingly to teach his disciples here and to teach us. His intention is to give clarity and encouragement, not confusion and discouragement, by spinning and exaggerating the truth. So if he means what he says, what is he saying? He is not saying that we are to do the miracles Jesus did, the miracles he did to establish his identity as God. These are not the works he came on the earth to do. He came to call people to trust him for the forgiveness of their sins. He says we are to do something greater than that, greater than the miracles. In the words of John Chapman, the great Australian evangelist, now with his Savior, go and tell the gospel. Jesus has left us on the earth with his Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Jesus didn't get out of Galilee hardly with the gospel. He didn't get out of Galilee. The apostles didn't get out of Samaria by the apostle Paul. He just put his tiptoe into Europe and Philippi. We get to go to all the nations of the earth with the gospel. That's the astonishing responsibility Jesus gives us to go and tell the gospel to the nations of the earth. 
And that astonishing responsibility is given to every Christian to play their part in this great commission. Jesus had just a few disciples. Just think of it. He had a few, 12 disciples, then 11. And then Peter bottled it. And Thomas doubted. Now he has millions and millions of disciples. But he's up there and we're down here. There are 10 times as many disciples in this room than Jesus had around him. In every local church, there are more committed disciples than Jesus had around him. And so as we reach out with the gospel in this community, that is exactly what this verse is talking about, impact. As we share in the gospel with our friends, that is exactly what this verse is talking about. Or on the university campus, or as we consider planting churches to go and tell the gospel, that is our astonishing responsibility. And even more, he does not leave us alone to do it. He gives us all the resources. From verse 15, which we look at next week, he speaks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. But the final thing Jesus says for us tonight in our passage is very simple and very searching. Just try and get that with me. Verses 12 to 14. Let me read them again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he or you do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. See how he mixes the phrases, what I do, what you do. What you do, I do. So will we take him at his word? and pray, believing that he will do what he says. Will we pray, Lord Jesus, as we reach out with the gospel in this community on Friday nights with impact, we pray that these young people would come to trust in you. As we share the gospel with our friends, Jesus, give us courage, boldness, the right words to say, and we pray that they would come to trust in you. I wonder if Jesus might say to some of us ministers in eternity, why did you not help them to believe what I said? Why did you not encourage them to come and to pray with conviction? Or here's a very pertinent prayer for us. Lord, we want to plant a church in the southwest of Edinburgh. Will you make that happen? Will you help Sam as he leads the church plant? Will you give him and the team everything we need? Now, I think in our heart of hearts, we believe he will, don't we? Of course he'll do it. Sam finished his presentation yesterday with these great words, God willing, and it is God willing, God willing. By Christmas 2019, there will be a new living gospel church in the southwest of the city. God, will you help us to do that? And will you cause many churches to be planted across Scotland? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So often, these big prayers are prayed by churches and people. And what's gone wrong is that their name is on it, not God's name. And there is the great risk of gospel vision. 
my name. Jesus says, no, my name. And what is asking? Asking is praying. What was the conclusion to the sermon this morning? Let's get praying. And what's the conclusion to the sermon tonight? Let's get praying. Well, let's do that now. Clear instruction from the Lord Jesus and strong encouragement. Jesus goes to the Father through the cross and the resurrection, securing our eternal future, and will return so we can be with him for eternity. The way we get there is by trusting in him who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Because Jesus is one with the Father. In Jesus we see, hear, and have everything we need. In his physical absence, Jesus, you give us astonishing responsibility, clear instruction, and strong encouragement. Help us to hold fast to the clarity of the gospel and help us to hold fast to your promises that take us into a realm that is bigger and greater and more encompassing than we can ever think our feeble, feeble attempts can accomplish. Keep us clear and keep us bold in our vision and help us to trust in you absolutely for all things. And in the middle of these big things, we hear your words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me.